Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on the 7th of February, 2024. Coming up in this week's programme, we're going back in search of the beginning of the swinging 60s. Always an interesting thing to do. Uh, Next week, of course, marks the St. Valentine's Day, uh, and we've uh, a reading uh, on romance uh, and 15th century style to cope with that. Um... We're also talking right up to date, a really interesting story of uh, Ruben Reuter, who has Down syndrome and has been chosen by Channel 4 as part of the team reporting on the forthcoming general election. Excuse me. (coughs) And we're also uh, going back again in time to uh, the classic anti-hero Harry Flashman, um, unreconstructed cad and accidental war hero, plus all our usual features. But we're going to start with this week's news with Peter and Elaine. Outlook News. Fresh concerns over council plans to scrap free parking at a popular Coventry Park have been raised by councillors, with one dubbing the move inequitable. Elected members across the political divide spoke out at a meeting on the 5th of February, held after almost 3,400 residents signed a petition against the council's plans to scrap the first three hours of free parking at the War Memorial Park in Earlston. The changes would also bring the parking fees in line with those at Coombe Abbey Park and are part of almost £11 million of savings the council is considering this year. Earlston councillor and member of the ruling Labour group, councillor Dr Lynette Kelly, told members the park is used very differently to Coombe Abbey Park. It is used by people from across the city but it's used for many short visits as well as extended visits. A council report last month found the extra costs would disproportionately hit residents and visitors on fixed and low incomes, though some discounts would be available. Councillor Kelly also pointed out that the council is currently rolling out a new livability scheme in Earlston and introducing parking restrictions. She said the impact of the charge on the streets is unknown and could adversely affect the council's efforts to make the area's streets quieter and safer. Wainbody councillor John Blundell of the opposition Conservative group spoke in support of the residents' petition. He told councillors parents park at the recreational area so that they can walk their kids to school. People feel the move will add to parking pressure in nearby streets and affect the business at the park's cafe. I would like the Cabinet member to consider whether this charge needs to be introduced, he told the meeting. Other councillors at the meeting stressed the health benefits of the park and the importance of free access for residents. Earlston councillor Anthony Tucker, Labour, said refraining from the move would make a massive difference to people across the city. 
Andrew Walster, Director of Street Scene and Regulatory Services, told councillors the council is confident it can raise the extra 150000 from the fees. When parking charges were first brought in at the park, these had no detriment on street parking in nearby areas, he added. The authority's final budget for 2024-25 will be signed off later this month. Coventry drivers will be barred from going down roads next to four city schools at drop-off and pick-up times from next month. Plans for the scheme, known as School Streets, were revealed in March last year. They have now been through a public consultation and brought in through an experimental traffic order. School Streets are a wider project across the UK that aim to make children's journeys to school healthier and safer. There are 500 such streets in London. Research from Transport for London found they had good results. These, it said, a report said, include less pollution and traffic congestion and a pleasant atmosphere at school gates. The scheme, in which streets will close to all motorists for an hour on weekdays at the start and end of the school day, will be trialled in five roads next to four schools in Coventry. Coventry's first school street was brought in at Templars Primary School last year and the results of a 12-month review of that scheme will be shared as soon as available. The plans are backed by school head teachers and local councillors. The report from the Communities and Neighbourhood Scrutiny Board says that the vast majority of people living in that area also support the move. Residents of the streets will be able to get free permits, allowing them to access their homes at these times. And, of course, emergency services will always be allowed through. The roads affected are Potter's Green Road by Cardinal Wiseman School from 8.30 to 9.30 in the morning and 2.45 to 3.45 in the afternoon. Ravensdale Road by Ravensdale Primary School from 8.15 to 9.15 and from 2.45 to 3.45. Oliver Street by Stanton Bridge Primary School, again 8.15 to 9.15 and 2.45 to 3.45. And the same times in East Street and South Street by Southfields Primary School. Sent to Coventry is the age-old phrase meaning to deliberately ostracise someone as if residing in the city was akin to a crime, or that nothing of any significance could ever happen here. That perspective was reinforced by many people who cast votes in a poll which ranked the top 50 worst places to live in England, and Coventry was 17th. This negativity, though, has prompted many locals to sing the city's virtues and to rubbish the lazy stereotypes. These included comments such as Coventry is a city on the up, fresh from enjoying a new lease of life as the UK's city of culture, a badge Coventry wore so well. There is so much for the place to shout about. And the city centre south development will benefit traders and the city inhabitants as a whole. It's a bold, ambitious scheme that is set to make Coventry city centre an even more attractive place to live, work and shop. 
Coventry might no longer be the global centre of car manufacturing, but it continues to boast a strong reputation within the industry. Jaguar Land Rover Bosses bases itself in Whitley for a reason, bringing businesses, jobs and investment with it, and the city remains at the forefront of innovation. Electric vehicles and how they are powered is high on agendas here in Coventry which hopes to be soon home to one of the UK's largest gigafactories. Coventry Very Light Rail is progressing nicely behind the scenes. When rolled out, it promises to be light years ahead of any other public transport model in the UK. Despite the devastating effects of World War II, Coventry still has a plethora of historic buildings and scenery to admire. Stroll through the cobbled streets around Holy Trinity Church, after visiting any one of the brilliant bars, pubs or restaurants, and the city's heritage and majesty really come to life. Sections of the city walls and its two remaining gates, Swanswell and Cook Street, still tell the stories of Coventry and its colourful past. Yet another reason to cherish Kofa's tree in the present day. Generations on from the devastating blitz of November 1940, the good people of Coventry continue to boast the type of indomitable spirit not seen in other major UK cities. That mantra, combined with a collective sense of tolerance and acceptance, reasons why migrants have felt so welcome and at home in Coventry over the years. The hand lent by so many to those displaced by the atrocities in Ukraine is testament to the city's humanity and compassion. Yes, Coventry can be a little rough around the edges, but name me a city that's perfect. Coventry has so much going for it, and it certainly, certainly doesn't deserve its tag as one of the UK's most depressing places to live. New images showing how vast areas of English countryside have been destroyed for HS2 construction have attracted fervent debate. The building of HS2 is clearly nothing new, yet the sight of different pockets of Warwickshire Green space being turned into building sites has whipped up emotions on both sides of the question. Before and after photos show how once rolling fields, hedgerows and sports clubs have been replaced with bare earth and towering concrete structures, from Kingsbury and Burton Green to Huntingham and Water Orton. These images a snapshot of what is being seen between London, Euston and Birmingham, have reinforced the view among many people that the line should never have been given the green light. Farcical, destructive project was one take. Billions of pounds wasted. The government should have cancelled all phases of HS2 years ago. You cannot blend back the ancient trees or the old houses you destroyed, another critic said. It'll never be the same. The trees you plant now will take generations to become like the ones destroyed, so people alive today will never ever enjoy them again. This whole thing should have been scrapped. I hope it fails and goes bust. I would laugh. The line, which snakes through Warwickshire before travelling south and west of Coventry on its way to Birmingham Interchange in Solihull, was branded a vanity project by one disgruntled observer. And because of the spiralling costs, Recuperating these costs through fares will make the fares ridiculous. But, on the other hand, the scheme 
gathered appreciation among those who referenced the significance of massive infrastructure products of the past. Had the Victorian public objected and and demonstrated, we'd never have the railways to use. The building of canals required digging up land, etc. They didn't create themselves, like rivers do. Just the same when the motorway system was built. I think we needed that, and we need HS2. A Coventry nightclub adored by thousands of revellers over the years is set to close for good. Recom, the UK's largest nightclub operator, has confirmed plans to shut down 17 of its sites, including JJ's at the Sky Dome in Croft Road. JJ's closed as a permanent fixture last June, but has since staged a number of one-off events. Now, the decision by Recom will see the club disappear forever, unless it can be revived by another operator. Sixteen other sites across the country, including Prism in Birmingham, will also close, creating a loss of around 471 jobs, the company's administrator Grant Thornton said. Peter Marks, chairman of Recom UK, said, We have made every effort to redeploy staff across the business where possible, and we are pleased to have saved around a 1,000 jobs. This outcome follows an extremely difficult period for the late-night sector, thanks to the combination of the cost-of-living crisis hitting younger generations and students particularly hard, as well as the rising national living wage alongside increased business rates and costs of operating. A plan to expand a bacon factory is set to create new jobs, the company has said. Beckett's Foods has secured permission from the Coventry Council to build a 1,200-square-foot warehouse and distribution hub in Coventry. The plans also see its production area on the Alderman Green's industrial estate being extended. About £40,000 will be paid towards offsetting biodiversity losses from the development, a council report says. Beckett's Foods, a subsidiary of CPC, which is itself part of German meat company Turney's Group, has been based at the Henley site for 20 years. Its development comes amid market success for its products and a sharp group growth in its employee numbers in the city. The firm currently employs 330 people at the site and plans to add more apprenticeship programmes, including hiring people from the local area, a planning statement on behalf of the company said. A council officer report on the scheme said it would have minimal impact on neighbours and the plan would benefit both the business and the local economy. Bosses at Jaguar Land Rover have hailed outstanding financial results as they announced the figures for the three months to December 31, 2023. JLR said it increased wholesales to fulfil more client orders in the third quarter of the financial year. The firm said revenue for the quarter was $7.4 billion up. Profit after tax in the quarter was 592 million compared to a profit of 261 million in the same quarter a year ago. The firm said that revenue and profit were very robust and JLR, whose global headquarters are in Coventry, says it is on track to hit profitability and cash flow targets. 
CEO Adrian Mardell was very positive about the latest results and said, Sales of our modern luxury vehicles hit new records in that quarter, and we are excited about the strong client interest for our soon-to-launch Range Rover Electric. Mr Mardell, Chief Executive, said, We have delivered a further outstanding financial performance in quarter three, with our best quarterly profit for seven years, and our highest ever revenue for the first nine months of any financial year. Sales of our modern luxury vehicles hit new records in the quarter, and we are excited about strong client interest for the future. I must attribute these results to our talented and dedicated people who work relentlessly to bring our exceptional modern luxury cars to the market. Looking ahead, we are mindful of the challenges the business will face, but we are confident that we will continue to successfully deliver our reimagine strategy. Richard Molyneux, Chief Financial Officer, said, I am very pleased with our strong financial results this quarter and year to date, with record-free cash flow reducing our net debt to $1.6 billion. A local woman who ditched her, her career as a scientist to become the UK's only female trebuchet master has said she underestimated how, inspi- how inspiring she would be to other people and she can't believe she gets to do such a fun job. Sophie Wood, who lives in Warwick with her two young daughters, first worked at Warwick Castle as an actor when she was 21. She then went on to study life sciences at the Open University and become a scientist. Her jobs included training in cardiac physiology and healthcare sciences, being a physician's assistant in anaesthetics, and being a lecturer at the Open University and the University of Third Age, before applying for the Warwick Castle job. She had spotted an advert for the Trebuchet Master position, and once her eldest was due to start school, felt this could be for her. When she got the position, she was excited and grateful to prove to herself that she could do it and to represent what women can do. It doesn't have to be a male-oriented job. The job requires Sophie to oversee the approximately 60 feet tall, 22-tonne medieval siege equipment at Warwick Castle culminating in a show in which she fires an 18 kilogram rock into the air across an island for paying visitors to see. Sophie said, My daughters think that me being the only female trebuchet master is just so inspiring. Doing this job really feels empowering in a way I never thought that I could feel. So to me, it isn't just about the job. It's what it represents for females as a whole. I get a lot of girls coming up to me to ask questions, which is amazing that this job came with that kind of responsibility. It's just wonderful. I can't believe I do such a fun job. Sophie said, My job involves getting into my trebuchet master costume in the morning. I have to then collect paperwork and go down to the island where the trebuchet is and do checks. On how the trebuchet works, Sophie added, It's got two huge wheels and we walk round it like a massive hamster wheel. It has a tow rope, which is attached to the machine, and when we walk, the wheels pull the main arm of the trebuchet down. 
Once the, that is down, it's secured in place with the safety chain and everyone leaves the machine and we load the ammunition, this 18 kilogram rock, to a rope which attach, attaches to a hook at the end of the arm. Then I remove the safety chain, pull the trigger rope and launch the rock on average about 120 to 140 metres through the air. The campaigners who fought plans to demolish Coventry Stadium for houses have been hailed as heroes. Last month, the government threw out Brandon Estate Limited's bid as site owners to knock down the former motorsport venue, also known as Brandon Stadium. Planning Inspector Helen Hockenhull upheld Rugby Borough Council's decision to reject the real estate company's proposal for more than 120 houses in place of the stadium, home for many years to the Coventry Bees Speedway team. The planning inquiry decision and all that preceded it has attracted national media interest. In a lengthy opinion piece on the subject, respective Mail on Sunday journalist Oliver Holt reserved huge praise for the nine volunteers who devoted so much to the cause as Save Coventry Speedway and Stocks committee members. In sport, not all heroes wear football boots, he writes. Sometimes heroes live near Coventry. Sometimes, as the satellite of a genuine afternoon in the Midlands fades to dusk, they find themselves standing in the shadow of the derelict stadium. They have spent much of the last seven years of their lives fighting to save against all the odds. Jeff Davis, an unofficial spokesperson for the campaign group, is quoted at length in the article. I was brought here as a baby by my family, he says, and I have been coming here ever since. You think of riders you watched over the years as a kid growing up. Riders like Ole Olsson, world champions racing for the club, Greg Hancock in the late 90s. The ashes of one of our greatest riders, Nigel Bocock, are interred beneath the track. A stadium is like music. It brings back memories. When you listen to music, it takes you back in time. And that's what this does for me. I am an old man now, but I would love to see the stadium reinstated and brought back to life for speedway and stock cars for the young kids of today to enjoy it in the way I did. Brandon Estates could sit on the development and decline to sell. The stadium's future remains unclear, but what is abundantly clear is just how much support the campaigners have from Coventry and beyond. Outlook News. Thanks very much to our readers uh, this week, Elaine and uh, Peter, for the news. Um, just moving on, I have the Sunrise and Sunset Times uh, gradually, gradually getting further apart and uh, more sunshine, uh, or more light rather, in the sky. Sunrise is at 7.38 a.m., Sunset 5.03 p.m. Right, okay, and now it's over to Hugh for the weekly news from the Resource Centre. Hugh. 
And boy, what a week it's been so far. Uh, we've had the most extraordinary start to the week. Um, on uh, Monday morning, uh, the newer, larger minibus uh, went out uh, to start picking people up, and a mile down the road on the A45, uh, where it is part of the A46 as well, it broke down. <sighs> So this, this sort of thing happens from time to time. Anyway, we called the AA out, got taken to a garage. Uh, we thought initially it was the fuel injector or a pipe going into it, which had been fixed in no time at all. The garage uh, put it up on the ramp, looked underneath, and somebody had nicked over the weekend our diesel particulate filter, uh, which is a bit like a catalytic converter that you have for uh, diesel vehicles. Uh, prevents all the nasty things going out the exhaust. The trouble with the diesel particulate filter being nicked was A, that the vehicle doesn't work, but also that um, we discovered, and it's probably the reason why it was nicked, that the number of um, parts, uh, uh, number of diesel particulate filters, new ones, in the country, numbers precisely zero. Uh, so it's, and it costs thousands of pounds to replace. In fact, I think a new part costs 2,000 pounds. So we were all reeling a bit from this, as you might imagine, uh, on Monday morning. And <clears throat> so uh, we were just wondering how to do it. I informed the insurance people, of course. Um, the people at the garage were moving heaven and earth to try and find a, uh, a, a replacement part uh, and looking into France and everything for it. So I was a bit miffed, as you might imagine, uh, about about this. I mean, who steals from a charity? So I put this, uh, particularly from a from a you know from a bus which has got the charity's name written on the outside of it. They knew what they were doing. It was parked right behind the charity sign. So I was I say I'm being a bit miffed. I wrote a Facebook post about it, and that got quite a lot of traction. Anyway, so Tuesday morning comes along, and we're you know just dealing with all the aftermath of this. In the meantime, we've had a great offer from the Enterprise Club, from whom actually we bought the bus, uh, both buses as it happens, and um, second-hand vehicles, uh, and uh, they're able to lend us one of their buses for today, Wednesday, and and on Thursday, which has been a great help. Uh, the garage tells us they've absolutely found a part and they've ordered it and it's on the way. Um, but, you know, the whole repair is going to cost something like £3,600, which is a huge amount. And, uh, you know, we were hoping the insurance was going to cover it. But, of course, if the insurance does it, it's going to take weeks and we're going to be without a bus for weeks. So we were between a rock and a hard place, really. As, I, as we were having our staff meeting discussing the issue yesterday, I got an email from a gentleman. He said, um, have you got information about this bus? You know, how much is it going to repair? So I wrote back and I said, well, we've just had the quote and it's, you know, it's going to be including VAT £3,600. Five minutes later, uh, he said, right, I've, uh, I've, uh, I'm sending you... <laughs> Um, sending you all that money um, on uh, PayPal. Well, not PayPal, it's on, on Just Giving. You know, uh, here you go. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, we've uh, what turned into a horrible news story um, has turned into a wonderfully good news story, um, thanks to the kindness of strangers.
Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I talked to Vic Minette on the radio yesterday morning, and uh, talked to her about it. And you know, and this had only just happened. So, you know, it's uh, it's been quite a roller coaster week, as you can imagine, going from um, the oh, uh, you know, oh no, to uh, how much to what the f, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> pardon my pardon my almost French, uh, what what the French, and then uh, and then to wow, how how wonderful. So. We've been uh, so. The news is then uh, we're without our second bus um, for the moment. The part is on its way; may even have arrived in the country by now. It's going to take a day or two to fix. The garage may be doing it over the weekend, <coughs> but certainly, you know, we hopefully we're not going to be out without it for very much longer. Um, and we're, you know, ter- tremendously grateful to everybody, you know, who's uh, who's supported us with the issue. Um, we are being without a bus. Uh, you know, we can we can manage most things. The one group that we can't manage with only one bus at the moment is the Bowls group on Friday. So that unfortunately has had to be cancelled. Uh, we just can't manage the uh, the logistics of that <clears throat> with cars. Um, the lone bus is not available that day. You know, fair enough. So, uh, with apologies, Bowls is cancelled this week, uh, but um, we should hopefully be back to normal service within a much shorter time frame than we had otherwise feared. But, you know, it's just been amazing. You know, people have been shocked, uh, really shocked mm. by uh, mm. by the theft from us. Um, as a result of my conversation with um, Vic this morning, the... Uh, the story's actually gone out on, on, on the BBC West Midlands uh, website as well. It's all there. So we're, you know, anyway, it's, uh, hey, no publicity. You know, all publicity is good publicity, isn't it? But I just, you know, we just wish it hadn't hadn't happened because, uh, you know, we've got to obviously look but after it the It also horses. highlights, you know, as you say, the angels out there. Absolutely. We, you know, the, for every, mm. well, I, I suspect that for every, you know, unparliamentary phrase person um, uh, that there is out there there are a dozen good people mm. and uh, we've certainly found that this week so you know it, say what a roller coaster it has been but there we are um, so that's where we're at at the moment we've only got one bus just at the moment we've got a temporary bus you know that we can borrow on a few days a week um, <clears throat> and we're hoping to have our uh, big bus back next week but some groups, you know, we may have to cancel. We'll try and manage with cars, and because um, uh, some some of our drivers will volunteer to, you know, pick people up and drop people off in the cars, and I will do that where where possible, etc., etc. So uh, there we are. What a day! What a couple of days that's been. Um, hopefully, uh, the insur- we've cancelled the insurance claim, obviously, and hopefully it won't send our premium skyrocketing which was the other risk of course of this do you have any idea when this theft occurred over the weekend at some point you know the Mm. reason i put out the facebook post in uh, the first instance was to see if anybody had spotted anything going on Mm. but um whether anybody seen anybody doing work on on the minibus Mm. uh, over the weekend anyway none of that but um but actually angels coming through so there we are so that's uh, so that's that. So we'll park that one now. But there we are. Now, yesterday I also had um, a very int- well. Chris and I had a very interesting meeting. We are going to be starting a brand new activity here, and something unlike anything that uh, has ever taken place here, or indeed almost anywhere else in the country before. Um, 
There is a game called Showdown, which is a, uh, a game specifically for visually impaired people, but anybody can play it. It's not just for visually impaired people. It's, a, it's an equal access game. You play it blindfolded, and it is somewhere uh, halfway between air hockey and table tennis is the only way I can describe it with a bit of sort of table football thrown in. Uh, so it operates as uh, uh, a big long table that's uh, about three and a half metres long and about one and a half metres wide uh, uh, with deep, deep edges. There's a barrier across the middle of it um, above the level of the play. So you've got a, a table at each end. There's a semicircular goal and the players stand at each end and they um, whack a ball um, at each other and off the sides uh, using a paddle and a very heavily padded glove um, to uh, try and score goals off each other. The ball itself is filled with beads, so it uh, makes a noise, and the idea is to you know, try, and, uh, try and score more goals against your opponent than they score against you. Um, and uh, it's a big game, actually, in places like Canada, in Northern Europe, in other parts of the... Uh, you know, there are about, I don't know, 12, 14 countries or something that, that where it's, it's a big game, but it's never really quite yet taken off here. Now, um, last year, um, you'll remember that... Um, uh, that Dave Monks reported from the IBSA Games, the, um, the um, International Blind Sports Association Games. And um, so Showdown was at that Games, and uh, in order for, uh, uh, for those Games, they bought a whole bunch of these tables, or about ten tables that they bought. And part of the legacy of those Games is they're going to try and spread those tables around different um, places in the country so that so that they can widen participation um, in the UK and we are now one going to be one of those um, one of those places the table will be set up in um, in Boston Lodge um, in the room next to Boston Lodge lounge uh, it's it's big enough it doesn't need to be a huge huge room but it's big enough for the table and uh, uh, and so uh, we're going to um, set up um, a club for it. So, well, actually, yeah, we don't quite know what we're going to do, but certainly there will be uh, a uh, an activity where you can come and learn how to play the game and and, and work out what to do. Uh, for those who are really interested, we, we may have like a, a proper like game playing tournament club, um, uh, which may may be perhaps in an evening or an early evening. Uh, we are. Uh, and you know, for people who are really, really interested, you know, that could lead on to things like, um, well, we're hoping that we're going to have interclub games. So we know there's going to be another table in Wolverhampton. Uh, there's going to be one in Oxford. Um, there's going to be one in Cambridge. There may be one in Birmingham. So actually, you know, within reasonable striking distance, you know, we've, uh, there are going to be other clubs available. We may be able to do interclub, uh, interclub uh, tournaments or, or meets, I suppose, meetings. <coughs> Excuse me, and then um, you know, for those who really get good, you know, there are the national and international championships that will be available. So it could be a really good thing. What do you actually whack it with your hand? No, it's a, with a paddle. Uh, it looks like a, an elongated. Well, it's like an elongated um, table tennis uh, paddle, but um, uh, or somewhere between that and a, and a flat ice lolly. Uh, so it's, it's quite hard to describe. So the ball has. 
be beads or, yes to make a noise yes exactly. when it goes in the goal yes do you get a bell ring or something no 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 <laughs> you, you, you'll know because the bell will stop the ball will stop you know making a noise it'll you oh. know, and you'll know that it goes into the oh. uh, you, it's, it's it's very obvious so you don't get a sound effect when the not, not when it, no, when no, 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 they're, they're, oh. no they're not plugged in these games so, yes, there's going to be a new National League set up, etc., etc. So we are... Uh, what I'm looking for now is expressions of interest. So we're hopefully going to open it, op- open it up to the kids. As uh, many of you know, we are, uh, we're doing quite, uh, doing quite a lot of stuff with and for the sensory support team. They're the council team that, uh, that support visually impaired and hearing impaired kids in, um, uh, in education. Uh, and... So we think that actually they're going, you know, they they in particular will probably have a real lot of interest. But it's for all ages, um, and uh, everybody who plays it wears a blindfold. So you're, so it's an absolutely level playing field. Mm. I'm hoping the floor is level in there as well, so it really is a level playing field. But <laughs> it should be. Um, and um, uh, so I think you know I think it's going to be a great a great a great addition, and you know we'll we'll be able to. Have have it so that people, if they want to practice on their own or with somebody, you know, you can book the table for you know an hour or whatever in the mm-hmm. day if you're here doing something else. To hone your skills. To hone your skills, just to pass the time if you fancy. Mm. So anyway, there's a lot of opportunities there. If you're interested, give us a call. Um, in fact, call Chris. Um, so you can call us on the centre o two four seven six seven one seven five two seven. Hold on, seven five two two. I should know this by now. And um, you could uh, uh, go through to Chris's extension, which I think is two or three. I, can, I think it might be two. Uh, and then you can um, uh, you can leave a message uh, with him or talk to him, and he will um, sign you up for it. <coughs> So, uh, right, let's move on to other things. There's a lot to talk about this week. Um, We're going to do an alpaca walk um, on the 20th of April. Uh, In fact, it's alpacas and meerkats, the alpaca and meerkat Mm. experience. Mm. Apparently, you can get right in with the meerkats. Apparently, they're quite cute. Um, Mm. I always thought they were vicious little creatures, but apparently um, uh, apparently not. Uh, These tamed tamed ones are really rather nice, and you can get in there. Anyway, um, so it's going to be... Um, the whole package, including uh, lunch and the bus and the tickets, it's you know it's a bit more expensive than our usual um, than outings we've done previously. It's going to be thirty five pounds each. But if you fancy having a go at that, so it's going to be on Saturday the twentieth of April. Um, it's going to be on a first come first serve basis. Basically, we're looking at um, you know filling one or two mini buses if we have them, um, and uh, that will be the limit of the numbers. So um, if you could uh, let uh, let us know, give us a call on the centre number, uh, and you can either let um, uh, Heather or Carol on reception know, or um, uh, or let Chris Norman know, and um, we'll sort it out. And you can make the payment at reception. And at where reception. is it? Um, it is. I don't know, actually, to be honest. It's somewhere, somewhere... Atherstone, maybe? No, uh, yes, Atherstone, that's right, Atherstone Way. Yeah, so it was up north of the county, <laughs> so... Oh, um, so, yes, so that's where it is. And it is, uh, so basically, and we'll be there for 11 and what have you, what have you. Anyway, so that's that. So if you're interested in walking with alpacas and experiencing with meerkats, uh, then, that is, uh, then that is the outing for you. 
Uh, I'll mention another outing. We've got the theatre trip coming up on the 20th of March. Don't forget, we're going to see Dirty Great Love at the Criterion Theatre. We've already had a number of people sign up. If you're interested in signing up for that, uh, do please uh, uh, call the... uh, uh, call reception and let them know. Get your name signed up for that. Tickets are £10.50. Fish and chips, um, well, it's usually, it depends what you have, but uh, that's uh, separate. And then we've got, uh, and then the bus is £6 return if you're doing it that way. Now, another new thing. I did think I mentioned, I think I mentioned this last week or the week before. Um, we are setting up some new monthly um, contact groups in the outer reaches of the city and we've got our first two ones that are, that are locked in and loaded as it were and we're calling these groups postcode VIPs so the first one is the CV3 VIPs uh, which is going to uh, take place on Tuesday the 5th of March from 2 till 4pm so what this is is going to be a bit like the Monday Club but with perhaps a bit a bit more structured though in terms of uh, you know we'll talk about uh, technology or help or things that people need um, we haven't quite pinned down what it is but it, basically it's going to be a little sort of mini we might do a craft activity it might be mini uh, versions of some of the activities that we do here uh, we're hoping to reach people who don't normally come to the centre but what we would like is for maybe one or two people who uh, either do use the centre or you know, some, you know, sometimes come to us uh, to just come and be the seed people for for the group. So, uh, so the uh, CV3 VIPs will take place at the John White Community Centre, which is in uh, which is in Binley. Um, and so that'll be from 2 till 4pm on the 5th of March. And then we've got the CV6 VIPs, uh, which will be the following day. That's the 6th of March. And that'll be at the Holbrooks um, Community Centre. And that will start um, um, at uh, uh, 10 o'clock uh, and go on till 12. So we need people from, you know, people who might be in the in the vicinity of the Holbrooks Community Centre, people in the vicinity of the John White Centre, who might be interested in just helping to get the groups going, and maybe, you know, just becoming um, part of that. So that'll take place on the first Tuesday and Wednesday of every month, um, <coughs> going ahead in the future. Going ahead in the future. Uh, we're going to do another group up, um, perhaps Bell Green um, or... Potter's Green or uh, up the northeast of the city as well and another group out west so Eastern Green Tile Hill Canley um, so, so somewhere around there so um, so we, you know we're going to spread spread them around they're each going to be monthly groups and we're just wanting to reach people in those areas who might all they might want is a bit of monthly contact you know if they can if they've got any particular problems they can they can talk to Cootie or and and another, any other volunteers who are going to be there just to get a bit of support for things you know if they need support with filling in a form or want some information or you know want want their uh, watches seen to or something then you know then that that's what those groups are going to be for and they'll be fun as well uh, so that's that. If you need any more information about that, you can talk to Cudi on 024-7671-7522. Go through to her uh, line, uh, which is option three, I think. Um, and uh, she works Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. Um, and uh, she can talk to you about those. Uh, now, uh, as I said last week, um, Claire and uh, Carl are going to be... Um, 
going into new jobs um, properly uh, next Monday. So Claire is going to be our new community fundraising champion. Uh, so she'll be working closely with uh, with Joe to try and reach out to the community and get people to raise money for us uh, and to uh, do community events and all sorts of other things. She's got a really packed program of, uh, of things to do. And Carl is going to take over fully at Transport um, and uh, he will be running the minibus side of things. So that happens uh, from Monday and we will um, we'll make sure that the, the phone phones are updated and what have you on that front, if I can do that. As you imagine, it's been quite a busy week and some of the things that I was supposed to be doing on Monday and Tuesday didn't happen. Um, I told you um, last week, I think, or the week before, um, about the sad death of uh, Joan Kirk, a long-standing uh, member of the charity and and, uh, and and the Monday Club and Bowls. Um, her funeral will be on the 15th of February um, at 3pm at Canley Crematorium. Um, I shall be going, obviously, uh, but if anybody else uh, would like to go, then please do uh, let us know, and um, there's space in my car for that. Uh, so, uh, Joe is off this week. Uh, she's for the remainder of the week. Uh, she'll be back next week. Uh, Cootie is off next week, but you can leave messages for her. Um, I will be off on Monday next week, uh, but I'll be back from Tuesday onwards. Um, I'll be having a little bit of a holiday in early March as well, but there we are. So, that's quite a long sesh today, and there's probably more that I could tell you, but I'm not going to because you're probably bored rigid of hearing me now uh, but it's all exciting stuff it certainly is thanks ever so much for that um, the kindness of strangers eh it is um, amazing never something not to be underestimated I tell you what when you know when I got you know got the email from the second email from him saying it's you know the payment has been made it's on its way um, and I came through and I told everybody and there was just this Little, no, yeah, little, just a, a frisson that went through everybody, all the staff, you know, and it was like, it's like, oh, you know, we were all a bit sort of, you know, well, moved by it, you know. Absolutely. So was I when I read it. Yeah. Okay, mentioned earlier on the game of showdown, so we're going to stay with that sporting theme for a moment, because here's Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sporting Sarah here. If I'm sounding a bit flat, I've A, got problems with builders at the moment, dot, 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 and B, got a very flatulent cat sitting next to me, so I'll leave the rest to your imagination and my nose. Right, on with the local sport. Well... Coventry Rugby Club travelled up north to Coldy. Coldy were third from the bottom before the start of the match. Coventry third from the top in the league. And indeed, after not too long, Coventry led 12-0. But then things began to slip and they went into half time at 12 all. But then, sadly, it all went very wrong. And Coldy came out on top, 26 points to 22. 
Oh, well, Cov, you can't win them all, but you have lost the last two, so come on, boys, with the ovoid ball. Now, going on to my once super sky blues, who you might remember have been on a rather good run recently. Well, midweek they played Bristol City. And I won't bore you with the details now because it's ancient history but and the match was as boring as dishwater to listen to. But it was a 1-1 draw. Still, one point is better than no points. But sadly, they travelled south a bit to Norwich on Saturday. Now, Norwich are one of those teams that are knocking on the door of promotion. And indeed, for many seasons, they really were the proverbial yo-yo team. Up in the Prem one season, down in the Championship the next, back up to the Prem, down. But the last two seasons, they've stuck in the Championship. Anyway, it all went rather well at first. Well, half-time it was nil-nil. But then, after not too long in the second half, Callum O'Hare scored. Cue the song, you know. We got O'Hare, Callum O'Hare. Although I know he wants a transfer to the Prem. But anyway, we'll leave that till the next transfer window because this one has just shut. But then, it all went sadly astray when one of our players was given a red card which means you have to go off the pitch. He'd already actually got a, sec got a yellow card. Anyway, Norwich scored shortly after that. But then things sort of settled. Yes, Norwich were on top, but we was defending well. But then, five minutes before the end, they scored. And that is how it finished. Norwich City 2, Country City one. Oh dear, gone is our unbeaten run. But we're, we're still sort of reasonably okay. I mean, we're seventh, which technically is outside the promotions. But on the other hand, the promotions aren't judged until May. So there's a lot of matches between now and May. So going down a few leagues a lot of leagues actually further. Oh, firstly, I couldn't find a match for our leading women's team, Rugby Borough, though I know they're playing in the cup against, I believe it's one of the Villa sides on Wednesday, and then they're away next Saturday. But the men, well, Leamington travelled to Bromsgrove Sporting. And thanks to a last-minute goal just before half-time, they went in at half-time 1-0 up. But then, by the end, they must have really turned the heat on and it ended up with a 3-0 win to Leamington, who continued to maintain fourth in the league. Whereas our other team in the Southern Premier Central League, Stratford Town, they were playing at home and they beat Hales Owen 1-0. And now 
they are fifth, just behind Leamington. So looking quite good for both of our teams there. Just keep it up, boys. And now on to other sports. And I'm afraid there is really not much other sport going on. If I tell you that the headline on the gymnastics page of the BBC website was about a local gym club that's had some equipment stolen, you'll sort of get the picture. Anyway, here goes a few little snippets which I hope may interest you. First of all, well done to local last Chelsea Giles. You know, her who won the bronze at the Olympics and suddenly sprung to fame. Anyway, she's won a silver medal this year in the Paris Grand Prix, which I think is like a qualifying event for the Olympics. So please select our Chelsea. Now, you may have heard about the much vaunted fight between Tyson Fury and Alexander Usic, where they're unifying all of the heavyweight belts, all four of them. Anyway, although scheduled for later this month, Fury's had to postpone because he's cut his face. I mean, it, do, it doesn't sound that big an injury, and he did it in training, but the blood that's poured out, etc., etc. And, of course, it would always be a weakness that the, the opponent could literally hit at. Anyway, that's that. Meanwhile, the England cricketers, I told you last week, how they pulled victory out of the jaws of defeat were well, not this time in the second test. Nah, India were well on top. And so England have now gone, are now at 1-1 with India with the rest of the series to play for. But meanwhile, and this kind of made me smile and kind of made me annoyed, at the age of 45, Dwayne Chambers is to run in the UK Indoor Athletics 60 metres. Now, normally you say, well, why is she kind of, you know, a bit... Mm. Well, in 2004, Dwayne was the athlete who took part in the men's gold-winning uh, relay the 4x100, where local lad Marlon Devonish was also a member. And, as the winners, they took gold. But then shortly afterwards, Dwayne Chambers was found guilty of drug offences. So the whole team, including our lovely Marlon, was stripped of their medal. Anyway, I know he served his sort of sentence, and in fact, he's come. He's been running again since 2010 when he became the world indoor champion. But 45 over such a quick distance. Oh well, Dwayne, you show them us oldies is goodies. Well, some of you oldies is goodies. This oldie is long retired from athletics. 
Anyway, folks, I'm sorry sport's been a bit shorter. I know most of you aren't. In fact, you're jumping up and down cheering. But I will see you next week, by which time I hope I've got my building work finished and my cat is less flatulent. Bye. So let's now find out what's turned up in Dave's postbag this week. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, hope you're keeping well. Welcome to your Postbag. Edwina starts it off by talking about New Year resolutions. If you've made any, are you still keeping them? Here's Edwina. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I'd like to say a very, very Happy New Year to you all. I wonder if you've actually made some sort of uh, resource to be more um, positive and busy and doing some of the jobs that never seem to get done. I have been busy really trying to sort out some clothes and get some taken into the Resource Centre Charity Shop. I must admit that I've got wardrobes full of dresses in particular. So, have I been to the sale? Yes, I have. I've actually bought two more new dresses. I'm smiling. Anything that keeps you happy is worth doing. And it's surprising how much they have knocked off some of the prices of everything because the stores had made it clear they would be getting rid of all stock to make a fresh start again. So perhaps you'd like to make a fresh start and have a new outfit. I have. And I've been keeping an eye on other things that have been going very cheap. Most things are half price. I was looking at something today because I'd been into Lamington and it was £100 reduced to 50 So there are a lot of those sort of mad reductions. So if you feel like having a fling and treating yourself, do so. Anything that gives pleasure is worthwhile. Keep smiling, everybody. Bye. And here's Julia to talk about buying more everyday things. Her report is entitled, Jen Took Me Up The Aisle. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, and yesterday we did. We went to Tesco, I mean, and not just any old Tesco. We went to the big one, the Rico, but even there we couldn't find anything we wanted. I think they keep a little pixie sitting in the car park, and when he sees me, he scampers into the store shouting, Here she comes! Hide everything! 
Then all the staff run around the aisle, taking the cakes down from their usual places and hiding them in the storeroom. Or sometimes they take all the useful things, like bottles of gin, and replace them with silly things that nobody wants, like cat food or lipstick. Last week we went to Morrison's. Then some little pixie was waiting for me there. And can you find a shop assistant when you want one? Not at all. I think they've all been sacked and taken up jobs as pixies in the car park. My friend John would make a good pixie. He would wear his yellow trousers, green hat, and red waistcoat, and sit in car parks all day. He'd be more use than he is now. January's nearly over now, so we'll soon have flowers again. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia, and your friend John does dress very colourfully. Very nice. Uh, do you find it frustrating when they keep moving things around in the stores? Just when you think you know where things are, they put them somewhere else. Let us know. And apart from shopping bills, there are power bills to pay, and they're very expensive. Graham gives good marks for service from British Gas, but not from E.ON Next. It was interesting to hear the report in Outlook News, the Upgen report on the customer service from the energy companies, and it's particularly interesting to hear that two companies which are used, British Gas and E.ON Next, are towards the bottom of the list. <laughs> Not surprised with E.R. Next. They're terrible to try and get through to. I have to ring them at opening time, otherwise I just can't get through to them. And what annoys me about E.R. Next is that they keep on um, altering the bill dates. No, I don't have a smart meter and I don't want one. But I have got somebody who can read the meter for me. And I always put the meter reading in, send the meter reading in, in time. I assume, only to find that they've brought the, they've moved the bill date forward, and I've missed it. And they're always doing that. I do find it a nuisance. British Gas, on the other hand, are improving, I find. I'm insured with their home care um, scheme, where they, you insure your, your gas appliances, and they come and sort them out when you have a problem, so forth. They've had a very bad record in the past. In the past, I've tried to book an appointment with an engineer, and I've had to wait days or a week before they could fit me in. But recently, I've had reason to ring them up two, three times, and they certainly have improved. On one occasion, I rang up a quarter past seven on a Sunday morning, only to find out what the opening times of the office was. I was able to link on, though, to their um, automatic booking system, and the date they offered me was the same day. The same day between 8 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the evening, but it was the same day on a Sunday, and I was very impressed with that. So British Gas, I think, are improving, but I'm afraid I have not a very good opinion of Eon next at all. I think they're, they're, they're just a nuisance, to be honest. Thank you, Graham. Tell us what service you get from your power supplier. 
And going back to the prescription ordering service pod, which is coming to an end on March the 31st, if you could reply to Derek by giving any experiences you have of using the NHS app as a visually impaired person, please send it to him because that would be helpful. Graham said that his chemist orders his prescription and delivers it, which is very helpful. I phone at my doctor's surgery, pressing 5 for the prescription ordering service. That's also very helpful. Presumably you can carry on doing these things. The chemist told me that the surgery doesn't use pod anyway. So how do you order your prescriptions? Graham said recently that he felt that darts was a game, not a sport. What do you think? Sheila and I used to join a Zoom session on VIP World Community for their light-hearted chats and quizzes. The question was asked, what sport would you have in the Olympic Games, which isn't already in? I told them that the modern Olympic Games were started in the town of Much Wenlock in Shropshire. One of the games there were, they had was a wife-carrying race, so that was my choice. They borrowed somebody else's wife if they hadn't got one. Incidentally, Britain, I read, is apparently world champion at tiddlywinks, cowpat throwing and gurning, where contestants put their heads through a horse's collar and pull an ugly mug. The world championships are held at the Crab Fair in Egremont in the Lake District. One of our late listeners, David Nichols, was West Midlands champion Gurner. David felt that gurning should be classed as a sport. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, to repeat the question for you that the, world, the VIP world community asked me is, what sport would you like included in the Olympic Games? Finally, here's a lovely message from Doreen Hilton. Hello, Dave. Um, you're here in my house of Doreen Hilton this afternoon. It's been lovely to have you. Not very many people come to visit me. And our Dave here this afternoon, we've been having a general chit-chat about different things, about holidays, about what's been going on with the life. Nothing crude, something nice. Showing him the house of the remodernisation through senior citizen and showed him a gentleman who I used to go with, um, Bob Brolly shows through Dunwoody and he loved to see his picture where he was jumping. I think I've cheered him up, I hope I have, he's had a nice cup of tea and a nice little biscuit and as I say, it's been lovely to have him here this afternoon uh, through his company. It's very nice day. Keep up your good work. I listen to you over the CVS every week. And I do wish more people would come and help you out with a little bit of story. Okay all, Doreen Hilton. Bye bye for now. And Doreen's friend, who used to accompany her on Bob Brolly holidays, used to take people tandem parachute jumping out of planes, but not Doreen. 
Thank you, Doreen. The chat over a cup of tea was much appreciated, particularly in view of the fact that it was only two days before the first anniversary of me losing my lovely wife, Sheila, on the 4th of February. If you'd like to chat, as Doreen says, please help keep Postbag going by sending a message into Postbag. Thank you very much. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks to Dave for this week's Postbag, and please, please keep your thoughts coming. Uh, We're very much keen to hear them. When did the swimming 60s really begin? Well, Philip Larkin had one theory, but actually it was cuddly Cliff Richard who became Britain's first real pop star and ushered in the revolution in music and taste. Here's the second of the two-part story, read by Keith. Michael Caine, who recently announced his retirement at the age of 90, had done spade work through in the late 1950s shooting... Uh, a dozen films before stardom struck with Zulu, The Ipcrest File and Alfie. Sean Connery had completed a similar number before striking the jackpot as James Bond in 1962's Doctor No. Roger Moore, a later James Bond, followed a similar path. British cinema slowly caught on to pop music's innovations. The essence of the age, captured a few years down the road in Michael Antonioni's Blow Up, starring David Hemmings, which was to movies what Sgt. Pepper would become to pop music, bringing together mystery, hip culture, fashion and pop. And Richard Burton, who'd set the nation alight in his film version of John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, just a year after Movit's release, was about to go global over his romance with Cleopatra star Elizabeth Taylor. A year on, and Britain suddenly woke up to the fact that food too could be cool. In 1960, Italians Mario Cassandro and Franco Lagatola opened their first Trattoria in London Soho, instantly attracting Hollywood film stars and London socialites alike. The food revolution they sparked can be traced in a direct line down to today's foodie stars Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, Marco Marco Pierre White and the rest. Meanwhile, one of their waiters, Alvaro Maffioni, peeled off to create his own name restaurant in the King's Road before launching the 60s most sizzling night spot, the Club del Aratusa. Here at last, music, food, film and fashion finally united to make London the coolest place on the planet. Mary Quant, the creator of the miniskirt, which upturned worldwide fashion ideas and which brought Twiggy, Jean Shrimpton and a host of other beauties onto the world stage, was insistent nothing would have changed without the arrival of Britain's homemade rock and roll and linked its birth directly to her own world of fashion. The music and the clothes are inseparable, she announced. Dig one, you're bound to dig the other. 
Quant, the daughter of Welsh mining stock, was rebellious by nature, and having graduated from Goldsmiths College, immediately set about binning the staid, frumpish modes which women were obliged to wear during the late 1950s. She found fame the hard way, taking on a shop in Chelsea's King's Road, then sitting down at a sewing machine and making clothes through the night to fill its racks. But the style she created, with the support of new kid-on-the-block photographer David Bailey and his models, including Twiggy, Jean Shrimpton, Grace Coddington and Celia Hammond, stopped the world in its tracks. Alongside Quant came hairdresser Vidal Sassoon, who gave her, and thousands more, his famous geometric cut. Hovering in the wings was the young Terence Conran, who sparked the nationwide craze for coffee bars in the mid-1950s by opening one called the Orrery in Chelsea's King's Road. Later, Conram would become world famous for creating the Habitat brand, but at the time of Move It, he remained the owner of a coffee bar, a much posher version of the famed Two Eyes coffee bar in Soho, which had been the crucible of the style revolution. Set in the basement of a decrepit building in Old Compton Street, the Two Eyes was the true birthplace of British rock and roll, though most of its stars fizzled out in infancy. Who remembers Terry Dean, Wee Willie Harris, Lance Fortune, or Russ Sainty these days? Yet without the two eyes, there'd have been no move it, no cultural explosion, no swinging sixties. Into the two eyes dismal cellar, the size of a large bedroom, lit by a couple of weak light bulbs and designed to hold no more than twenty customers, thronged the talent of the age, including Georgie Fame, Richie Blackmore, Screaming Lord Such, and of course Cliff Richard. The young composer Lionel Bart and pop producer Mickey Most acted as waiters, while future Led Zeppelin manager Peter Grant was the bouncer. In the audience were Mark Bolan, Diana Dawes and Terence Stamp. The Beatles, Rolling Stones and the many other bands who a few years later would become the face of the swinging 60s, carrying the revolution forward and greedily taking the glory for it, owed their legacy to what went before. But sadly too few of them had heard of Ernie Shear, the man who handed them their fame. Aged 97 at his last birthday, he remains the living example that rock and roll will never die. Almost time for Valentine, and to mark the day, this is the second part of an article from the Daily Express on love and romance, 15th century style, read by Elaine. Who knew, by the way, that Coventry St John the Baptist Church in Spawn Street has a relic said to come from your actual St Valentine? Despite being unable to write in her own hand, Marjorie was determined to stay in touch with her beloved, which is why she dictated her letter to the trusted servant. She was prepared to be intimate in expressing her feelings to the absent John through a go-between. Her thoughts and desires shine through the letter. It has a commanding tone, which would leave John in no doubt She refused to take no for an answer. In fact, while she reveals she has asked her mother to put pressure on her father to increase her dowry, she also tells John he should marry her either way. If you love me, 
as I truly believe you do, you will not leave me, she writes. My heart commands me to love you truly, above all earthly things for evermore. I am not in good health, in body or in heart, nor will I be until I hear from you. She signed the letter with her own hand. Be your valentine, Marjorie Bruce. Whether or not she would wed the man of her heart balanced uneasily on a knife edge, with neither family prepared to compromise. Even John's elder brother, also called John, the head of the Paston family, was no help. He needed his money for armour and horses to fight in the war against France, which had put him in debt to a London merchant. The affair remained deadlocked. But Marjorie, a remarkably strong-willed young woman for the time, had other ideas. She had decided John would be her husband, whatever the odds, pursuing her lover in the only way open to her, by dictating yet another letter. Most honourable and dearly beloved Valentine, if the marriage comes to nothing, I will be even sorrier and full of sadness. Good, faithful and loving Valentine, do not take the trouble to visit me any more on the matter of this marriage. Rather let it be finished and never spoken of again, on condition that I may be your faithful lover and petitioner for the duration of my life. It was a fervent declaration, but also imbued with a hint of female cunning. Is there a touch of emotional blackmail in Marjorie's command? Did she suspect her stubborn Valentine might give up unless she reminded him of the depths of their love? She left him in no doubt of her despair. Sadly, we do not know if John wrote back. In the end, after months of wrangling, Sir Thomas decided on a dowry for Marjorie, as well as money for the bride's trousseau. At the same time, John's mother provided one of the Paston estates for the couple to live on, and a further income to allow the young couple to establish their own household. Marjorie had achieved her heart's desire. Sometime towards the end of 1477 they were married and were soon blessed with a son and a daughter. John was eventually knighted by King Henry VII for the part he played in the Battle of Stoke Field, the final battle in the War of the Roses, so that the couple became most reputable members of the gentry, Sir John and Dame Marjorie Paston. When John's elder brother died, John also became head of the family and holder of all the Paston estates, including Caister Castle near Great Yarmouth. Marjorie would have been delighted. Their marriage lasted just shy of twenty years until her death. Anne O'Brien first came across this delightful story of almost unrequited love within the collections of Paston letters written by the family in 15th century Norfolk. Many show the necessity of a good marriage for a family with ambitions of wealth and status. 
Back in the Middle Ages, love and happiness were not emotions to be considered when negotiating marriage, but sometimes love overcame all obstacles. Today, 541 years on, we send millions of Valentine Day cards every year, each one with its message of hope and love, just as Marjorie Paston sent hers, determined not to lose the man she had set her eye on. All of which proves we must never underestimate the value of sending a Valentine's message to someone we love. Who knows where it might lead? So get out there, get your Valentine and get it sent. February the 14th is not far away. Romance is in the air. We're staying in the past for a minute or two now with the latest instalment from Hurdy Gurdy Days, a portrait of life in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century, read by Alan. The four men intended to go straight into the pub for a pint when they came out of the church. But by now they felt so ashamed that not one of them had the courage. For the first time for many a long day they all went home. Much to the surprise of their families, especially the children, who couldn't make it out at all seeing their dad home so early. They decided that they had better turn up on Monday night to receive their prize of a pint and face all the other mates in the bar. When they all trooped into the pub, one after another, the atmosphere seemed strained and different somehow. Not one of them mentioned the free pint and the visit to the church, but all eyes were on the door, waiting for the parson to come in. Sure enough, at exactly eight o'clock he came in, smiling all over his face and saying, Good evening, gentlemen. He walked straight up to the counter and ordered five pints, but there was silence for a few seconds. Then old Sam stood up, after a lot of nudging from his mates, and said, Look here, parson, we don't rightly feel we ought to accept your offer of free pint, because we all enjoyed your sermon so much. So we thought we would like to give the many towards summit for the black people out in them foreign parts. So if you will accept their money from us chaps, we all feel better about it somehow. Well, that is very generous of you all, said the parson, but we agreed that I should buy you all a pint, and as I have ordered them now, I think the arrangement had better stand. I tell you what, though, you usually have two or three pints yourselves every night, how about putting the money for one pint in my missionary box and only have two pints instead of three on a Friday night? I will bring the box with me next time and you can put it in yourselves when you settle up for the week's beer. So that was all agreed upon. The parson was a real live wire, though, and realised he has still a lot of work to do to finish what he had begun by inviting them to the church. He knew that the men only lived a stone's throw away from the pub, so he decided that his next move was to visit their families in their own homes. The first family he visited was that of George Mills, in one of the courts nearby. George was a big, burly fellow, but his wife was a frail little woman with four children. She had to take in other people's washing, although she had plenty of her own, but there was never enough money coming in for food, clothes, rent, etc. The oldest of the children was about seven or eight, a boy, and as frightened looking at his mother. The next one, also a boy, 
was about four years old, but not old enough to have much fear of anybody. As his mother had always protected him, and he hadn't started school yet. Most of the rows and fights had occurred after he had gone to bed, and as he was used to a lot of noise, he wasn't disturbed by the screaming and shouting when his father came home drunk. The older boy had not only heard all the screaming, but had witnessed the beating of his mother, and as he was often still up when it happened, and he was terrified of his father then. He had decided in his mind that when he was a man he would somehow get his mother out of all this and have his revenge on his father. The next child, a girl of three, was like her brother, not old enough to take much notice of the noise, as she was also in bed when her father came home from the pub. The baby, also a girl, was about three months old. When she was born, George cursed and swore at the fat old midwife when she came downstairs for some hot water and told him, "'It's another girl, George.' He went straight down to the pub, not asking how his wife was, and did not return until the landlord had shouted, "'Time, gentlemen, please!' His wife, who lay trembling in her bed with her newborn baby, had entreated the midwife to stay the night, knowing too well what state George would be in when he came home. This particular night he had been hollering all over the bar about his wife, having another wench, and treating all his mates to the wetting of the baby's head. He was in such a drunken state at closing time that the landlord also feared for George's wife and the helpless babe, and told the barman to fetch a policeman to follow him home. The policeman was standing at the bottom of the yard as George came reeling up. Aye, you just be quiet, will you, and behave yourself. Your missus is in bed. If you can't make less noise, I'll run you in, because my mate is at the bottom of the street, and I've only got to blow me whistle and he'll come. George heard what the policeman said, and like all big bullies, was a coward at heart. So he went up the yard and into his own door, as quiet as a mouse, much to the surprise of his wife and the midwife. How times have changed. This is the story of Reuben Ruta who has Down syndromes and has been chosen by Channel 4 as part of the team reporting on the forthcoming general election. Read by Sue. Reuter, 23, is one of the UK's most groundbreaking young reporters. He has Down syndrome, yet has been able to produce films that generate alternative perspectives on pressing issues of our times, including the pandemic and climate change. Channel 4 News has now selected him as a member of its reporting team for the forthcoming election. It is recognition of Reuter's engaging reporting style and his ability to ask direct questions that elicit frank responses that more hard-nosed journalists are often denied. In a campaign where we can expect politicians to hide behind rehearsed answers authorised by party headquarters, any candour from candidates will be welcome. I like to ask simple and to the point questions. It helps to put people in a more relaxed mood, he says, on a video call from his home in West Yorkshire. A simple question often brings out the most truthful and emotional answers. Media training will not have prepared interviewees for the experience of being in interrogated by Reuter. 
making it harder for them to stonewall his questions. People don't understand we are humans. We have got hearts and we have got feelings, he says, of the widespread ignorance of the impact of learning disabilities, even in 2023. Reuters' achievements in stepping out of the margins of television and entering mainstream news cannot be understated. TV should include everyone, and the more learning disabled people on TV, the better, he says. We have a lot to give and share, we just need more opportunities and support. Reuters spoke with the COP26 president, Alok Sharma, at the Glasgow Climate Summit. He questioned the Electoral Commission this year over the shockingly low voting turnout among the 1.5 million people with a learning disability. We've seen the strength of his reporting mirrored in the huge audience for his packages online, driving millions of views for new and returning viewers, says the Channel 4 News editor Esme Wren. Yet there are some in the TV industry who have reacted to his presence as a correspondent on a news bulletin by dismissing it as tokenism. Louise Turner, who runs Channel 4's Film Fund, describes the response as really rude and notes that even the most experienced broadcast reporter depends on support from production colleagues. Reuben has this energy and empathy and screen presence many don't have after doing it for a long time. Reuter, who has developed a close working relationship with producer Rosie Baldwin, joined Channel 4 News in 2021 after earlier work as an actor and a presenter on CBBC documentaries. The BBC has a dedicated disability correspondent, Nicky Fox, who has muscular dystrophy. Tommy Jessup, an actor with Down syndrome, has presented documentaries for the BBC. But Reuters' presence on a daily bulletin is unprecedented. He has become a Channel 4 face, says Turner. He has done his first pre-recorded two-way with a presenter, and aims to go live with his reporting soon. He's likely to appear in the Channel 4 News studio in Leeds, near his home in Huddersfield. If I'm filming live, I just need to keep my coolness, he says. I love new challenges to improve my speaking and to make my eye line better for pieces to camera. His work is getting recognised. He was awarded a Journalism of the Year prize by the disability charity Sense last month. He's nominated in this year's Grierson Trust British Documentary Awards for a film he made about disability and abortion. Broadcast, the television industry publisher, named him one of its 2023 hotshots. Channel 4 News wants to give the learning disabled community genuine representation in news by ele elevating Reuter to a broad reporting remit, beyond his role covering disability. We've been moving away from disability being the only thing he does, otherwise it feels like he's pigeonholed, says Turner. With his background in acting and dance, Reuter is taking on culture stories and his interest in environmental issues. 
We try to use Reuben to do more accountability interviews, says Turner, because they're not expecting anything from him, and then he's able to ask questions in a way maybe another reporter would not be able to. Politics is the next step. I would like to talk to the Green Party first, then Rishi Sunak, he says. It will also be the first election at which he feels confident enough to cast his vote. Continuing our romantic theme this week, here's Finding Love Online, a short story written by Cynthia Townsend and read by Ali. Stacy had been with her boyfriend Martin for eight years. They were very happy in the beginning, but as the years went on, they got into a bit of a rut and started taking each other for granted. They didn't spend as much time together as they used to, and both of them had their own interests, which meant they were living separate lives. It came as no surprise, after going out for a meal with friends, that they decided their relationship was just not working anymore. They still loved each other, but it was more like friends than lovers, and Stacy moved out of the house they shared and rented a flat. It was really odd being on her own after all this time, but it also felt quite liberating. The one thing that Stacy noticed more than anything was how quiet her flat was. She was always used to noise at the house. The house next door to her had a family of seven, and there was a constant stream of noise from the kids, either coming from inside the house or in the garden. But the silence in her flat suited her. Her new neighbours were elderly, and the only noise she heard was the faint strains of the Mantivani Orchestra coming through the walls, and that was quite soothing. Stacy managed to bring a few things with her from the house. Martin was quite generous, letting her have a majority of the things she wanted. She was the homemaker, and most of the things she bought for the house weren't joint purchases, so he told her she could take what she needed to set herself up. It was one of the most amicable breakups ever, and they rang each other every day for a week for a catch-up and a chat. It was probably the most they'd ever talked in eight years. Stacy even encouraged Martin to go on a speed-dating night. He was reluctant at first, but he bit the bullet and ended up meeting a really nice woman called Hannah, who seemed really nice. It did mean, however, that their weekly chats were not so frequent. Hannah was now on the scene, but Stacy didn't mind. Of the two of them, Martin was the one who needed to be part of a couple. Stacy wasn't too unhappy at not being romantically linked with anyone. She had a wide circle of friends and was always being invited out for something or other. And it wasn't unheard of to go out for a meal or visit the theatre with the group of friends a couple of times a week. There was always something going on. It was during one of those meetings with friends that Stacy met John. He was the brother of Jess, one of her work colleagues. He didn't live locally. He was visiting his family and was at a loose end and agreed to come out with his sister and her friends. Stacy was sat next to John, whether it was intended or a happy accident. It was indeed a good idea, as they got on like a house on fire. They chatted for most of the evening, 
and found out that they had a lot in common. Stacy really liked John. He was a nice-looking chap, but it wasn't his looks that attracted her to him. It was his easy-going manner and his attentiveness. However, as nice as he was, there was no future in it for them to continue, as John lived over 200 miles away, and long-distance relationships never work. Besides, she wasn't really looking for love. When the meal had finished and it came to settling up, John offered to take Stacy home, which she agreed to. He drove a really nice car. It wasn't flashy, but practical. He needed glasses to drive. His specs were like the ones Harry Potter wears, and they made him look a lot younger. I hate wearing my glasses, he said, but needs must, and I prefer to see the road and make sure you got home in one piece. John dropped her off outside the flat and gave her a peck on the cheek and said that he hoped that next time he was over visiting his family and friends, they could meet up again for another meal. Oh, that would be nice, said Stacy. Drive safely back home, John. Stacy got back into the flat and listened to the message on her answer machine before she put the kettle on, made herself a nice cup of builder's tea and reflected on a lovely evening. The next day, John's sister took no time in telling Stacy how much he enjoyed their chat. Oh, he was talking about you a lot before he left. You made quite an impression on him. Yes, said Stacy. He was really nice and good company. Thanks for inviting him, as I really enjoyed myself. Over the next few days, Stacy thought about John a lot. She thought it was really nice that they got on so well but how typical he lived so far away. One night after work, all the girls from Stacy's office decided to go for a drink to celebrate a birthday, and in no time at all, talk gravitated towards dating. One of the girls told the group about her experience with an online dating app, and her social life had never been so busy. Stacy was quite interested in this and wanted to know more. She was told that the app had a really good success rate in matching people up. In fact, her friend had been seeing her app man for nearly five months now, and it was going really well. When she got home, Stacy decided to sign up to the app. Well, she might as well put herself out there again, as she was sure Martin was dating someone new even after Hannah. Filling in her profile was hard. She honestly didn't think that she was a great catch, and if she didn't think so, how could she persuade others that she would be a good date? So Stacy asked her friend Julie to write something based on what she thought about her. No one likes to blow their own trumpet, especially if you suffer from low self-esteem, and others will have a different view of you. Julie wrote an honest assessment to Stacy, and she was extremely flattered and, if truth be told, a bit tearful. Stacy uploaded it, along with a photograph of herself, and press send. It was finally out there. Now all she had to do was wait for the responses to come in. It had been several days since she posted her profile, and because she'd been busy, she hadn't really had the opportunity to check. And when she did, much to her surprise, there were several responses. She was, in fact, quite chuffed, and at lunchtime she started sifting through them. At least three of the five were not really her cup of tea. The photos seemed nice, 
but looking at their likes and dislikes, she didn't think she had that much in common with them, and she wasn't that brilliant at making conversations with new people. It could help if she had something they could talk about together. One of the profiles stood out. He seemed nice. The picture was not that clear, but it was his profile that intrigued her, as he worked for a London-based charity, but was relocating to a branch nearby to head up their West Midlands operation. He liked live music, going to concerts, and played an instrument. Stacy really liked the sound of him, plus the fact he liked animals, which was an even bigger bonus in her eyes. Stacy made contact with him, and they started texting each other, which then led on to emails. Over the course of a few weeks, they became ardent pen pals. He was very eloquent and loved to talk about his childhood, and how much he loved their family dog, who recently passed away. It was such a coincidence, his name was John, the same as the brother of Stacy's friend, which she thought was a good omen as she had a good experience with the John, so she thought that was a sign. A couple of months later, they decided to meet up. He'd now relocated to the area, and was ready to immerse himself into a social life. Stacy suggested that he joined her for a drink, and a meal that her fellow workmates had organised one Friday, to celebrate the retirement of one of their colleagues. So, she thought he might want to come along, and it'd be less pressure meeting in a social setting for the first time. John thought that was a great idea, and said he'd love to meet her at the restaurant, and he told her that he'd see her there at the date and time she suggested. A few days later, Stacy was getting ready to go out and text John to check he was okay in finding the venue, as he was new to the area. He said it was fine, and he was looking forward to meeting her in the flesh. Stacy and her friends all gathered at the bar. Stacy had her back to the door when her friend Jess squealed with delight when she saw Stacy's date walked into the restaurant. John, she said, what are you doing here? Stacy turned around and Jess's John, the John she'd first met a few months ago, was indeed the same John she'd found on the dating app and started up a conversation with. I thought it was going to be you. John said to Stacy. I had hoped, but I didn't want to be disappointed, she said. But why didn't you tell me? I wanted it to be a surprise, and it certainly was a very pleasant one. And just like it started six months previously, Stacy and John spent the evening chatting and laughing and rekindling that friendship, which she now hoped would have a fighting chance at becoming something more serious. As soon as she got home, she deleted the dating app. Well, what was the point of keeping it on her phone? She found what she'd been looking for, and from then on she knew that living with John and the distance wasn't a problem anymore. It was no longer an obstacle, and the road ahead looked rosy. And finally this week, we come to the second part of an article about George MacDonald Fraser's Harry Flashman unreconstructed cad and accidental war hero. The piece was written by H.B. Lyle and is read by Bill. His talent for languages and his swarthy appearance allow Flashman to go undercover across the Empire in James Bond style. Unlike Bond, 
Flashy is quivering with fear throughout his adventures, whether it be escaping the lusty clutches of Queen Ranavalona of Madagascar, desperately trying to pull General Custer back from Little Bighorn, and kidnapped by Bismarck with the connivance of Lola Montez, posing as a sepoy in an Indian army about to mutiny. There are only ever two things on Flashy's mind, survival and women. These action-packed books also really do work as excellent history. This is because Flashman's great trait, his one heroic quality is, as a narrator at least, honesty. As a character, he is all those things listed above, racist, sexist and so on. That's an honest description of the men and systems of the time. Far better to see the truth than to sanitise it and learn the history from these books how the Koh-i-Noor diamond found its way into the king's crown, why America's invasion of Afghanistan was doomed, what really went on in the transatlantic slave trade. For Macdonald Fraser was not only an excellent historian, but a brilliant reporter. Born in Carlisle in 1925, he served in the ranks in Burma during the Second World War, then as an officer in the Gordon Highlanders, before taking a post on the Glasgow Herald. He worked until the stratospheric success of Flashman in 1969 allowed him to turn to fiction full-time. Apart from the Flashman books, he wrote Hollywood films, including James Bond's Octopussy, novels, memoirs and short stories. He lived on the Isle of Man, died in 2008, aged 82, an OBE and legions of fans across the world. Personally speaking, I wouldn't be a historical novelist without Flashman. As a 13-year-old, I'd barely read a book of my own volition until I picked up Flash for Freedom and read it in a day. Soon I was signing up for History A-Level, droning on friends and families about the social and political history of the 19th century. Let's be honest, the fact that these books are romps in every sense of the word must also have been an attraction to a teenage boy. Barely a woman who flashy doesn't try to bed. Eat your heart out, Jilly Cooper. Even more inspirational, as a writer myself, I used Macdonald Fraser's very same trick taking a minor character from classic literature, growing them up and inserting them into real historical events. I took Wiggins, once of Sherlock Holmes's band of street urchins, the Baker Street Irregulars, and grew him up to become the Secret Service's first and greatest agent. I got so much satisfaction from reading Flashman's interaction with historical figures I love to play the same trick with my own writing, dropping in facts and people like little Easter eggs for the reader to find. Perhaps the greatest trick of all with Flashman, though, is that these books are tremendously funny. Flashman sees through the moral hypocrisy of those around him, 
and punctures it every time. Oscar Wilde is described as an overfed trout in a toupee. Flashman himself, while sojourning with the Apache tribe, is given the name Warrior, who goes so fast he destroys the wind with his speed, or Windbreaker for short. Apropos of nothing, David Cameron was nicknamed Flashman by Labour when he was PM. Donald Fraser's wife once said life with him with one long joke. So are the Flashman books, a joke that spans twelve books and more than sixty years of rip-roaring history. He is one of the great comic characters of English literature, up there with Bertie Wooster. While the other great characters get continu continuation novels, Holmes, Bond, Poirot, Flashman has stayed firmly in his place. As fans know, there is at least one great novel yet to be written. U.S. Civil War, where Flashman served, was decorated by both sides. It remains the great unwritten flashy novel. I know of at least one writer who would love to write this novel. Surely its time has come. If not a new novel, how about a TV and film? Sharp, Hornblower, even Jack Aubrey found audiences and a claim on the screen. This flashes time, not now. He made it to the screen once in 1975 in Royal Flash. Directed by Richard Lester, written by MacDonald Fraser himself. That hasn't held up well. It's too farcical, and the director miscast Malcolm McDowell as a rather effete and silly flashman. He should have used Oliver Reed, cast as Bismarck, in the role. Despite being a bounder and an absolute cad, Flashman is the perfect hero for our times. If the publishers can't find it in them to commission another book, Surely one of the TV streamers can, and bring history to hilarious, heart-pounding life for us all. More Flashman, please. That ends uh, this week's uh, Outlook, so it's goodbye from me, Peter Walters, and from the team. <laughs>